Hey everyone, uh, my name is Cole James and I am excited to announce the Feel Free Again podcast. This is a podcast that has been a year or two in the making. We've been talking about doing this a long time. And this podcast is really all, all about us being able to talk freely about our emotions, about the highs in life and the lows in life, and, um, and really just be able to tell the truth about ourselves uh, with a goal of, again, feeling free again. I know we've, we've all at one point in our lives known what that felt like, and maybe through painful events from the past, painful memories from the past, losing people we've loved, having things not turn out exactly how we'd hope life would turn out, right? You, you know what it is for you. But the point is, is emotional pain can really make us feel like we're trapped, like we're in a prison. And the goal with everything we do around here is to help people feel, feel free again. Today, I'm joined by a hero of mine, a mentor of mine, someone that I've looked up to for quite some time. That person is Lois Hall. She, uh, I'm not great with bios, uh, but today we're, uh, we're going to get into her kind of life bio. There's a lot of things I want to ask her. There's a lot of things I want to hear from her about. I don't know exactly where this conversation will go, but you're not going to want to miss it because this is an incredible human being with a lot of tools and skills at, at how to help people. Um, and I know she's helped me as well. So without any further ado, Lois Hall, welcome to the Feel Free Again podcast. Well, this is going to sound like a kind of a you pat my back, I'll pat yours, because I love you too, Cole James. <laughs> um, I, you know, I knew your dad, and I'm just thrilled that you were carrying on that legacy and uh, looking forward to this conversation. Perfect. So the first thing, if you don't mind, Lois, is if, if you <clears throat> can get into um, a little bit, you know, a little bit about your childhood, and then I also really want to talk about your work with the Department of Health. I want to talk about kind of this courageous stuff that you did to kind of advocate for children early on in your career. Um, so if you can just give uh, the audience just a little bit about Lois, Lois Hall's background, a little bit childhood, and then let's go into this fascinating part of your career early on in your career with public health. Sure, absolutely. So I, uh, I grew up on a small farm in Northwestern Ohio, little farm girl, okay? Never wore shoes in the summer, right? Cause you know, who right. does? Um, yep, and, yep. and so a little farm girl. And I, and I wanted to be a doctor from about the time I was in the sixth grade on. Um, our local doctor got killed and I wanted to just go to medical school, come back and be the doctor right there in the hometown. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen. Right. And so other things did. And that's where my career with the Ohio Department of Health came into, into play. But but if I were describing my childhood, I I tell people it was an idyllic childhood. Right. I mean, I don't remember having any violence or any abuse or, you know, no, no big tragedies, no big tragedies. But my mom and I were never close. I never in my entire life heard my mother say the three words I wanted most to hear which were, I love you. Mm. Nothing was ever good enough for my mom. I got straight A's, but if it wasn't an A plus, it wasn't good enough. If I did the dishes and put the cups in the cupboard, she'd come and take them out because it wasn't good enough. If I did the ironing, she'd come back and do it again because it wasn't good enough. And so while I had what I thought for a long time was this idyllic childhood, that not good enough message kept playing in my head all the time in all kinds of scenarios. And, and this, 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 this desire, this need, who more than your mother do you want to say to you, I love you? I don't remember ever being touched or hugged or held by my mother. Now, she was a wonderful woman. 
she was a wonderful woman. She worked hard on the farm. You know, she was a good mom. She fed us. She made our clothes. I, I would have told people it was an idyllic life. But yet and still that hole in my heart was when my friend said, my mom is my best friend, I went, what would that be like? And so then getting older and realizing how that not good enough message kept playing over and over and over in other contexts, that was life limiting. That was life limiting. And I had horrible self-esteem. If somebody, you know, thanked me or appreciated something I did, I'd always come back and say, oh, it wasn't that good. Or, oh, I messed it up. Or, oh, it was, you know, it wasn't good enough. And so I, I, I started to believe that I wasn't good enough. And, and I'm sure that that played out in my relationships with other people until things changed, until I got free again. So that's kind of the childhood. It was, it was idyllic. There was no big major tragedy, but it was just this hole in my heart for where my mom should have been. So wow. that's, that's yeah. kind of the childhood story. Just for the audience, um, you know, Lois and I work together every day, and that's why I just thought it would be so cool to have her on a podcast. My wife and I are fledgling beginner homesteaders, right? With lots of mistakes and laughs in between us trying to figure this out, right? Both growing up in the city. Uh, and, and Lois grew up on a farm. So it's been fun to kind of like run stuff past her. That you guys, you guys ran a lot of chickens, right? Right. They had this this massive amounts of chickens, and we yeah, have like forty, yeah. maybe forty right now, or something like that. So um, I'm always kind of getting guidance from you from you on that. One thing that I think is interesting, right, is is right now my kids' childhood is vastly different than 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 what mine was. Just just in terms of living in more, a more rural, rural setting. And I think it's kind of an interesting kind of just thought process of, of kids that grew up in a city versus kids that grew up on a farm. I mean, my kids, they see dead animals all the time. Now, that could be on our farm. That could also just be driving along the road with the high uh, dense deer population and elk and, you know, all these things where death is just a part of it. Um, and you and you're forced to have the conversation where I have friends in cities where. Every time they lose a goldfish, right, they hide it from the kids immediately and then create this whole like finding Nemo tale of how the, the fish like jumped out and is now somewhere else, like hiding death, hiding, hiding mm -hmm. that. So mm -hmm. if you can, Lois, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but if you can, can you tell me a little bit about just again, life growing up on the farm for yeah. you and, and sadness and how that was handled by your parents and, you know, just yeah. a little bit about that. Absolutely. And in fact, even even hearing you talk, you know, our stories are reversed. I grew up on a farm. Now I live in the city. My kids grew up in, in you know, suburban Columbus, Ohio, and they live in cities. They'll never know what it's like to live on a farm. They'll never know. And so growing up on the farm, we had about 8,000 chickens, which back in the day was a lot. You know, now there are farms with millions and you never right. get to know them or name them or anything like that. But we had about 8,000 chickens and they just they die. Chickens die, you know and they just always disappeared. And in fact, gross, gross thing, sometimes dad would feed them to the pigs. How gross is that, right? So, so there were the chickens. But the other things, cats and dogs, we never had pets in the house, but we always had two or three dogs and you know, a dozen cats roaming around. And, and they would die too. You mentioned getting hit on the road. And, and they would just disappear. They would just magically disappear. And dad never said anything really about that. They just disappeared. I don't have a clue what he did with those dogs and cats. So the message I got, and mom never said anything about anything emotional, but the message I got was that death was no big deal. He never said that. 
He never said those words out loud, but that was kind of the subliminal message I got that was death was no big deal. And then when my grandmother died, you know, my mom took the phone call. It was a Sunday morning. And she said, well, your grandma has died. We're going to take you and your brother to church. We're going to go over to grandpa's house. We'll come and get you. Somebody will come and get you from church later. And again, that message played again. Well, you're the only grandmother I knew. My other grandma died before I was born. And so your only grandmother that you knew just died. You go to church and pretend like everything is just fine. So again, that, that message of death is no big deal even kind of played there with the only grandmother I had ever known. You just go to church and pretend like everything is fine. My dad worked at a grain elevator and he fell off of one of those big buildings at, at one point and we were practicing for a Christmas concert. He worked at the elevator as well as having the farm, practicing for a Christmas concert and his boss came and motioned me over to the, to the window or the door of the, of the band room and he said, your dad just fell off the elevator. We've taken him to the hospital in Lima. We're not sure how he is, but you just stay here and practice for the concert. Go to the concert. Somebody will come and get you tonight when it's over. Again, my dad. Now, my mom, not so much. My dad was my guy, right? And, and, and so that was the first recollection that I really have of, oh, my God, something could happen to my dad, right? And again, it was, you just stay here and keep doing what you're doing. It's like no big deal. My dad just fell off at like a three-story building. So that was interesting. And then other farm stories. We had a farmer next door who got his arm caught in an auger. We had somebody who literally had barbed wire poke his eye out. Um, the guy who owned the elevator, his son died in a, in a grain accident. He fell into one of the grain bins and suffocated. So, so working on a farm, you know, there was death, there was loss. We never really talked about it. It was just kind of a part of growing up. It was no big deal. That's just what happens. So I find it beautifully, blessedly ironic that now, you know, grief is so much a part of what I do because it is a big deal. Loss is a big deal. And, it, and you carry it with you. And this pounding it down and pretending like it's not there d didn't really help anything. It, we just kept going. You just kept going. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting topic. I, I, and I don't have the answer. Uh, obviously, Lois and I work with grief and loss and, and pain and sadness. Uh, you know, that's our, that's our career is helping people with that. And now that I'm living this life, it has been so. So we've been doing this for now three years, four years, my wife and I and our four kids here in Idaho. But even in, when we were in Oregon before that, we, we did like homesteading on a smaller scale. And now we have like 20 acres and we have we've had sheep, we've had pigs, we've had rabbits, we've had like we're trying to figure out what we like and, and kind of what works with our world, you know, having a full time job, too. I don't know what the answer is, and that's really kind of where, where I'm feeling compelled just to, to talk to you about this today, Lois, is it, I, we just dropped off six sheep the other day, right, to the butcher, and I'm, I'm unloading them at, in the horse trailer, and all I, knew to, all I kind of know to do is say a prayer and thank them, and then they're all kind of sitting there um, kind of looking confused at their new home, and I know, you know that they're going to be harvested in the next kind of 10 minutes, and it's a father and son, and they're amazing people that, that, that do the butchering. If it's smaller scale, we've done a lot of butchering too on the farm, me and Ashley specifically. So I'm not outsourcing this job all the time unless it's like a, a lot of animals. Or, But again, just watching my kids and me, there's a difference there. Like my, my like Wyatt was with me, my eldest son, he's 11. And there was kind of, now he was, he was kind of over the sheep because they laid down on his ducklings and killed his ducklings. So they were, he was already angry at the sheep, but that's, that's kind of a side issue. It's a death on death story, isn't it? Yeah. It, it's it a is. death on and death story. Yeah. Yeah. Literally. Um, 
But he didn't need that, that completion that I needed. I, he, he didn't need to say goodbye to those sheep like I did, right? Me, me kind of living this life in my 30s and 40s is very different than him starting to lead this life at five or six. I, I mean, he's help, helped us harvest chickens since he was probably five or six, right? Um, and all of my kids seem to, to be that way. I'm really enjoying this conversation, Lois, because it's like there are certain roles in life, areas of this country and world where you live, where there is more death right there in front of you. And it needs to be that way for all of us to live. I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is for us to live, other things need to die. Doesn't matter if you're a vegan, a vegetarian, a car on the carnivore diet, things are, are dying for us to live. Um, and so how do we have, how do we, number one, identify the pain and what hurts and then the other things that don't hurt? And is that okay? Is that not okay? Again, I'm, I'm kind of feeling this all out as I go and I'm having yeah, my kids yeah. as a reference. I'm having my wife as a reference. I'm having me as a reference. And so it's just kind of interesting, you know, thing. It's like what you were saying about death wasn't a big deal. And I was curious for you to get into, well, when did, when did human death come into it? Is it a big deal then? Oh no, it was even treated not like a big deal there. Right. So just kind of an interesting topic. Yeah, if you have yeah. anything on, on what I just said. Well, so going back to pets, talking about pets or, or animals that die. So we always had these pets and, and the first memory I have of pets is dressing them up in doll clothes and pushing them around the barnyard in my little doll buggy. Right. right? They were barn cats, but they were very, very friendly. But when, 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 he, when we got married and, and had our kids living in a suburb, you know, um, they wanted pets. And I said, no, nothing doing. We live in town. There's no, there's no place for them to run. They need to be outside. You wouldn't take care of them. You wouldn't clean the cage. You wouldn't do this. You wouldn't do that. Right. And so our kids never had pets growing up, never had pets. I mean, we might have got the goldfish at the state fair. Right. But you swing that bag a couple times and the next thing you know, they're gone, too. But 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 I was I was sharing my loss story um, several years ago, about 2015, when the when the pet loss book came out and um, our youngest adult child had brought home a hamster. They were living in an apartment and they were going to get a new apartment and their their new roommate was going to have a cat. We didn't think the cat and the hamster would maybe get along real well. And so they left the hamster with us. Now, mind you, my kids are all grown and gone, but here sits this hamster in the cage and I would come home at the end of the day. Beckett, grandma's home, right? And he liked the corn kernels the best. And so I would feed him the corn kernels through the, through the wires. And you know, Beckett was my, was my, was my baby, Beckett. And, and I noticed at a point that he quit going up into the little penthouse in his cage. Hmm. And then I noticed that he started kind of staying right near the water and the food. And I thought, hmm, this isn't good. And I thought, you know, and I, I didn't know this, but smaller animals live shorter lives than big animals. And so sure enough, one Saturday morning, I woke up and Beckett was cold and hard and dead in the corner of his cage. And I grieved. I cried, right? And, and so as uh, what happened was, I mean, so I put Beckett in a little box. I put some Excelsior in the bottom so he'd be comfortable. I sprinkled him with some oil so that he wouldn't smell and the neighbor's dogs wouldn't dig him up. I put some corn kernels in in case he woke up and he wasn't quite dead. He'd have some corn to nibble on on his way to wherever hamsters go to. Put him in the box, wrote on the top, here lies Beckett Hall. And I put his, you know, the date that he died and we buried him in the backyard. And as I told that story, I said, does that sound like something a six-year-old little girl would do and never got to do with all those pets? And I started to cry, not just because of the pets that I had lost or the fact that Beckett had died, but it, it made me realize part of the reason that I never wanted my kids to have pets 
was because I didn't want to get close to them because I knew in my heart that it was a big deal, right? And so now I'm seeing that the impact of my loss and my grief and this no big deal myth prevented my kids from the joy and the beauty of having pets. None of them grew up with pets in the house. It wasn't because they couldn't run or they wouldn't clean the cage or they wouldn't take care of them. It was because I didn't want to get too close to those pets. And so it was like, what an, what an awful regret to have not only had my life impacted by that, but then to pass that on to my kids. And so my oldest son now has a, a wonderful dog, Bengal, that they love and adore. And Cade has three cats that they love and adore them. And you know, Jason is thinking about getting a dog. But, but, but they didn't have that experience as kids because of me. So, so yeah, how it, how it affected my life, but also the life of my kids is still is just a, a marvel to me. And the fact that we had that little funeral, just like a little girl would yeah. do. That made yeah. no sense wow. for an adult. Right, right. Well, yeah, there's so much there. So thank you for telling the truth about that story. And I just, I want to, for the audience, just to really come back to why, why we kind of came up with, with the term feel free again. We believe, and I know Los would agree with me, that unresolved emotional pain robs you of choice because you are, are busy with your coat of armor trying to shield from the next loss, right? So if I have pain from my past and I don't know what to have done with it, I don't know how to complete what is unfinished emotionally for me, it, that really limits my future choices, right? And so Feel Free Again really represents, hey, let's go ahead and find ways for us to complete what is unfinished emotionally and therefore have more choice in real time now. Again, this isn't to beat up my parenting or Lois's parenting, but really, you know, what I'm hearing is, is like Lo from Lois's story and attempt because she had that coat of armor, because because of, you know, having a lot of incomplete loss in yep, her past, no right? There was no choice for her to consider getting animals for her kids. Now, this could be uh, subconsciously, it could be conscious, you know, but but either way, the choice wasn't there for Lois. It was, we're not going to have pets in this household because I don't know. I don't know if I can really hang with being getting attached and then having more loss. Right. So that's really interesting. Um, and then the other thing that that I love, Lois, is, again, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks with with judgment or with comparison or, or minim, minimizing. What I love for you, for you guys to hear in the audience is Lois was going to go ahead and have that memorial for Beckett, whether whether anyone liked it or not, because Lois knew what she needed to do for her based on a bunch of stuff she's picked up in her life and skills and tools. So she she knew intuitively she's going to have a memorial and no one else gets a vote in that. And, and I love right, that part. Right. And I, I don't want anyone to miss that. I do that, too. I really have the freedom to live my life how I want to without it having to fit in perfectly with what society would think, right? Um, uh, in different areas, especially when it comes to emotional completion and, and doing things that, that, that will be beneficial for me to complete what I need to complete with any relationship I have. So, you know, thank you for that story. Yeah. Um, you know, one other beautiful and, yeah. point about that story too, the kids weren't here. My husband and I buried that box in the backyard. Right. And so the, the point about nobody judging or comparing, I have the most amazing husband. He's never he's never done some of the grief work that I have, but he did not deny me the opportunity. He dug the hole. He was right there. Right. He he did not deny me the opportunity to have that ritual to say goodbye to Beckett. 
And so that's that what you said about nobody, you know, denying or, or judging. He was so good because of just osmosis of what he's learned. But he knew too it was important for me to have that to have that ceremony for Beckett. So yeah. Yeah, and I second that. Don is the man. Um I, I <laughs> love your husband. He's a great man. And it it um yeah, there there are these things that are uh, really important, these rituals that we've had throughout the, the dawn of man, right? Which are these, these, these rituals saying goodbye to our, our, our loved ones, friends, family, um, and also animals that were friends of ours too. And it's such an important part. And I think what's sad, right, is we have, we've sterilized so much of death now, right? Where we don't really, really have a much of a role in, in the death of a loved one in a hospice environment, um, in, in, a, in, a, in a hospital, for that matter, right? There's a bunch of bells and alarms the minute someone dies, and we're not given a lot of people, right? We used to bathe the body. We used to have the body right there in the living room. I mean, I, I believe that we had picture windows, and part of that was so that we could get um, full caskets through. I mean, mm -hmm. there, there, mm -hmm. there was a lot more completion work being done by our ancestors, and there was a lot more time spent allocated to the saying goodbye, definitely to the physical, right? In our work, we talk about when someone dies, we'll take death for an example. If someone dies, you have the end of the physical, right? But it is not the end of the emotional. And for many people, depending on their beliefs, it's not the end to the spiritual, but it is certainly the end of the, the physical. Well, nowadays we get robbed of so much of that saying goodbye to the physical. One of the things I, I'm really grateful for is when my dad died, he died at home and the, and the hospice nurse would come and do checkups. But this was, this was a you know, several month long process, right? I got to really say goodbye to my dad physically for a while. And, and I remember I came in to check on him. It was like three at night and I came and I saw that he had died. I just could tell looking through the threshold of the of the of the uh, room i saw my mom sleeping and i i just knew that he was dead right from across the room mm -hmm. um and we get we got to i woke my mom and she she already knew and she was just sleeping next to him you know and mm -hmm. and she already knew and then she got up and then we got to spend um the night you know outside of the room but going in and kissing him and and hugging him and you know i got to do a mm -hmm. bunch of emotional completion and I'm so glad I had that, you know, and I, and I feel for people that don't have that. And I, and I hope and I wish that we could have more of a movement in hospital, in clinical settings to do this more, a lot more than we're doing right now, uh, because I think it's a really important part of it, right? And so anyway, that's kind of another thing I wanted to, to, to talk on when you're talking about the ceremony with Beckett. Right. That reminds me of another childhood memory, too. My dad was first generation American. He was Welsh and all of his family lived in Wales. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a kid, they would send us photographs of the cemetery plot or photographs of the person in the casket. And as a kid, I thought, Jesus, that amazing. That's gross. Why are they sending us this picture of this dead person in a casket? Right. Well, he didn't get to be there. And, and again, I'm getting chills, Cole, because I hadn't remembered or thought about that in a long time. But, you know, for him, he never met them when they were alive. But he had letters. He had stories from his parents. And so those pictures, and even though it took weeks in the mail to get here, it might have been two, three weeks after they had died. 
But those pictures were really important to him because that was the only thing he got to do in, in the way of a ritual. And so finally, I think it was 1972, uh, you know, we finally went to Wales and dad could see those cemetery plots in reality. And it was important to him to go there right and to go to the homes where his grandparents had lived and and you know again thinking how we're such a mobile society now too immigrants here and there and people who grew up in columbus now live in new york and you know i mean we can't always physically be there and so w what you were talking about reminded me too even of that story and how sad it must have been for my dad you know to have not been able to grieve with his family for those losses. I, I have a, a copy of a letter that somebody sent to him telling him about his mother dying, right? Or his grandmother dying, and he wasn't there, right? I mean, I can't imagine. And again, it took, you know, days, weeks. How long did it take to go across the ocean back in the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s? And, and so you're right. I mean, again, being there for that ritual is so important, so important. It's and and again, it, just going back to earlier in our conversation, it's it's why I'm so interested in comparing my my kid's childhood to mine. Um, again, just carcasses, bodies, things are not unfamiliar to them, you know. And again, I think there's 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 good and there's bad to that. Uh, but I do think how urban we are now as a country, right? Think about how much more. Um, that was what a, ch a part of a child's life was, Absolutely. right? Uh, death was just a part of it, right? We were, we were witnessing that, right? Well, now, now you can grow up in a large urban area and really almost think that death doesn't exist for much of your life. And I think there are different fears and there's different things that, you know, again, I, I, I know we don't wanna get too, too deep in the weeds on that, but I think culturally we are really getting in our own way in terms of working towards saying goodbye uh, to a lot of these people with, with just any kind of lack of, of awareness around that. Now, again, yeah. there, but on the other side of the coin, right, it's kind of like I, I think of, okay, well, how do we help kids like you, Lois, when you were a kid and you had a bunch of death around because it was the business to raise chickens, to harvest or to get eggs, but there was going to be a lots and lots of death. My kids, same thing. And how do we how do we make sure that they still have the choice as adults to have, um, you know, pets in the household versus I just can't open that door because it was so overwhelming as a kid. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the, these things, obviously, because I care about my kids, I, I love them very much. I want to figure out, OK, well, what is the balance there? They're, they're going to be around death because I, I very much. Ashley and I are very passionate about really ha kind of being connected to our food, not just hiring some middleman to do all of that. Like if I'm going to do those things, then I really need to know what that's like. Um, and, and we have a lot of appreciation uh, towards us putting in that work. And I think it really benefits the kids in a lot of ways. But at the same time, um, I want them to be able to know how to work through that stuff. Right. And yeah. it's not like it all like sometimes you have your domestic pets and they are they're part of the family and then you got just on the pure other side of it you got the meat rabbit right but then in between you got these ducks that you kind of really crack up about right and and you do form a relationship or like Wyatt, he loves the pigs and so he's got relationships and it's like how do you say goodbye to kind of a friend but somebody that you know is is really being raised for for to feed the family yeah. 
yeah. but it's it does kind of like blur the lines between you know domestic pet and and this is what we do right and and so again i i don't have the answer it's like i'm yeah. very new to this right so yeah. i don't know if you have any any thoughts on that or guidance knowing what no. you know yeah the 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 one thing again childhood memory comes to comes to mind you know when you grow up in the country there's 4-h right and for the girls you do sewing projects and cooking projects and so forth but for the guys they raise steers they raise pigs they raise sheep and they take them to the county fair right and they clean them and they wash them and they train them and they talk teach them how to stand just perfectly right so that they look really good for the judges but i i've never done that part but I wonder how much the 4-H talks about what happens when that grocery store buys your steer, you know? I wonder how much they talk about this, this, this kind of that, that, that gray line that you were talking about. This, this steer was my friend, right? And now I'm selling him for, you know, $30,000, $40,000, and where's he go next? So that's, that was an interesting remembrance of mine too is is that blurred line but i think cole the thing and i know you do this with your kids and i i've always tried to do it with mine too and it comes down to telling the truth telling the truth the chickens died the deer was killed on the on the road right rather than we lost the dog or you know somebody passed or you know all those euphemisms we use and and to kids it's very confusing it's very confusing what do you mean you lost them where are they are they under the bed are they in the closet where are they what do you mean they lost them and with people well you know grandma just went to be with jesus i remember when our second son was about six years old my mom and dad died when he was like five and then mom died when he was six and he was being kind of mischievous in the back seat of the car one day and i said to him hey stop it stop it right now i'm going to stop this car and he goes mom don't you yell at me or i'm going to kill myself and go to heaven and be with grandma and grandpa because we talk so much about grandma's going to be in heaven with grandpa now right grandma's going to be in heaven with grandpa she's in a better place all those things we say which may again be spiritually true. It was spiritually true for us, right? But to a child, it sounded like, again, it sounded like a choice he had too. Grandma and grandpa always were nice to me. They never scolded me. If you're not nice to me, I'm going to kill myself and go to heaven and be with grandma and grandpa. Oh my gosh, did that stop my heart? We got to have a more serious conversation about what this whole thing means, right? So, so losing somebody or somebody passed or they went to sleep or they're, you know, they're, they're in a better place. We got to tell the truth. And I am sure, you know, again, you're talking mostly animals on the, on the, the homestead there, but I'll bet when your dad died, you told the truth to your kids about that too, didn't you? I'll bet you didn't yeah. say grandpa went to be with Jesus or grandpa's grandpa fell asleep and is sleeping with, you know, whatever, whatever those, those platitudes are, I'll bet you told your kids the truth in fact, I'd be curious, how did you tell your, because they're at various ages, you said why it's 11, you know, and they, they go younger from there, but how do we tell our kids the truth about death, right? It is a big deal. It is a big deal, pet or person, it's a big deal. How did you tell them? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly, it was such a whirlwind, I was going back and forth from Oregon to Idaho as much as I could to be there, um, and I'm pretty sure I had to do it over the phone. There was no way that I would. That's the other thing I think too is sometimes we hide the truth for weeks and weeks and and you know for so many different scenarios that's not a great plan either because no, no. if we're taking if we're taking uh, kids for an example, 
kids are like black belt at intuition. They're so intuitive. And it's not until we get in the way as adults that they really, we kind of beat that intuition right. out of them over the years, right? So if you're like dancing around something or waiting for the right time, or we didn't want you to know during your SATs about this, right? right, right. They're, fe they're, feeling, they're feeling the energy, right? And then you're telling them nothing's wrong. And then you're, we're teaching them to distrust their intuition, right? So we and think we're, we're, well, well, yeah, and definitely, you know, so now, so we have, thank you. Yeah, we have a, we have a loss of trust in a parent. We're, le we're learning how to distrust our intuition as well. Um, and we are, and, and we're just avoiding what needs to happen, which is they need to know the truth, right? So um, anyway, back to my story, I'm sure I, I talked to uh, my wife, right? And then I, I'm, let's just, let's just say I did this because I, I assume I did. I, I don't remember specifically how it went, but they were very well aware of the whole thing. That's another thing. A lot of families would have opted being, oh, I'm just going to go visit grandpa, right, or whatever. But we were, again, age appropriate. I have four kids, so age appropriate. We're having conversations about what cancer is and kind of what grandpa's feeling, you know, and, and kind of, you know. So we were trying to be there uh, when, they, when, they, when they were asking questions. Again, I'm not going to constantly remind my 11-year-old throughout the day. Now, remember, gra grandpa's dying over here in Oregon. If he asks, I'm going to answer honestly, right? Mm -hmm. Kids are still in the moment. They can be giggling and sledding one second and then be super sad about the reality of what grandpa's going through the next minute. And we, we can address that. And then they can go back to being back in the moment. And I think that's all good. Uh, I'm not trying to get in the way of any of that. Um, I'm not a fan, just kind of a sidebar. I'm not a fan. I've seen a lot of adults that, are un, that have unresolved grief around, let's say, a sibling or, or a parent. And then they're like constantly trying to remind the child, okay, do you remember what this anniversary is? And do you, right? And they're, and they're bringing, they're bringing all this kind of incompleteness they have. And they're almost like wanting the child to, to, to relive, like, we're going to go to the, the memorial again this year. And we're going to go to the honorary, you know, event this year. And uh, I'm not doing a great job articulating what, what I, what I'm, what I'm trying to get at. The takeaway is if we're adults and we know that we're hurting and we're incomplete with this grief, we really owe it to our kids to do our work. It's one thing to want your child to know about their uncle that they'll never meet. Uh, it's, 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 it's one thing to be able to tell stories and really you want that, that person's memory to, to live on and, and your kids to know who they are. That's like one thing and I got no problem with that, but it's, it's another to really be, to be, I don't know, Lois, if you want to help me out, it's, it's just well, another thing. We're unfinished with that relationship and we, and we have to almost force the messaging and force all yeah, of the yeah. stories and the events to the to kid. Um, it's, it, talked, it just can seem, I don't know if manipulation yeah. is the right word. Well, we talk, it just, we talk it's heavy for the kid. It is. We talk sometimes about enshrining or bedeviling, right? And so it's kind of what's the balance in the stories that we tell. Oh, uncle so-and-so was just wonderful. He was just amazing. He was just awesome, right? And so they get this, this one-sided understanding of who that uncle was. Or he was just rat nasty, or he was this, or he was awful, or he was this. So we, we kind of, I think, from some experiences that I've seen people go through, is we kind of tend to do that right? Rather than the realistic, nobody's St. Teresa and nobody's the devil. Every, you know, they're all kind of all over the place. Um, but sometimes in our storytelling or our memorializing, and maybe that's just our human nature, 
um, yeah. to do yeah. that. But I don't know if that's where yeah, you're going. There, no, no, thank you. It's not where I was going, but it's a really important topic to bring up enshrining and bedeviling. I think another thing that happens a lot that could not happen as much is if we had more tools about how to complete emotional pain. A lot of the time in, in our in, when people go through divorce, we get so busy telling the narrative to the child, stuff that's not really appropriate for the child about who, who their dad is or who their mom is or really who their dad or mom is in the perception of the person kind of hurting over the breakup, right? I just see this a lot of the time um, playing out in that specifically, that, that loss. And if, if we had other tools, right, and, and Lois and I try and help people with these tools, obviously, um, if we had other tools, we really could we could really, again, find more of an accurate memory picture of who that person was, find some empathy there, uh, work on forgiving all that, that really kind of stuff that is below the line or what, what Lois called bedevilment. That'll free us up to go find some above the line stuff that, that when we did fall in love with them, all the good memories we did have. And then sometimes that will rehumanize that person. And then we can, you know, we can kind of be a little bit more accurate with yeah, talking yeah. about the RX in front of our kids. Even, I, I think that would be such a huge gift absolutely. if the world could just even, learn how to heal from that yeah. stuff, you know, more. Even with my mom, right? When I talk about my mom, I, I do this a lot. And my youngest adult child um, never knew my mom or dad, right? And so the stories we tell, right? If I had not used these tools, I would be telling these stories to that child, right? Our two older kids, they, they had the chance to know grandma and grandpa. But if all I tell is these kinds of stories, my mom was a wonderful person. She fed me. She taught me how to cook. She gave me my love for numbers and data and statistics. Um, she was very organized. Uh, she loved to send cards. You know, I mean, there were many good things about her too, right? That if I was only stuck with this, that's all my, that's all my third child would know. And what I tell people now is, and unfortunately, I love my mother more now than I ever did when she was alive because going through and using these tools helped me really go back and see, no, she wasn't always this. She just loved me in a different way than what I expected or hoped that she would. Um, and knowing what little I know about her childhood, she didn't get a lot of love and hugs and touches either. Um, you know, and so, uh, you know, I can have compassion for her in that. And I can realize that, yes, it wasn't what I wanted or needed, but, you know, she loved me in many ways. She loved me yeah. in many ways. And so I can have a more accurate picture of her, which is helpful for me. It's helpful for me as a mom. It's helpful for me as telling, you know, stories about my mom to my, to my adult children. Yeah, that accurate, having more of that accurate memory picture of who the person really was. It's, it's yeah. anyway. Yeah. No, thank you. That that's that's wonderful. Um, okay, so the next place I want to go, if you're good with it, is we're gonna flash forward through Lois's life, and she is magically at the Department of Health, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. But I really would love to get into. I just think this is such a cool part of your life. You, I don't want to. I don't want to step on the story at all. Um, but basically, you find yourself in kind of a big national event, Arena. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, arena um, it, that went down in history. So would you mind kind of telling us a little bit about that story? I would be glad to tell you about that. So I wanted to be a doctor. You heard me say that earlier. That was all I wanted to be. And people would say, well, maybe you should be a nurse. I didn't want to be a nurse. I wanted to be a doctor. Well, when I didn't get into medical school, I was crushed. What am I going to do? I had no other plan B, right? 
and, and I was crushed. And when I called home and told my dad and mom that I got that last rejection letter, I don't remember what my mom said, but dad said, well, honey, don't feel bad. Maybe you can be a nurse, which just crushed me even more because he was my guy and he didn't understand what a big dream that was. So camera moves forward. I, I get a call from the placement office at my university and I didn't even know they had a placement office or that I had signed up with it. And they had this job opportunity available at the Ohio Department of Health to be a communicable disease investigator. I didn't have a clue what that was, but it sounded exciting. All right. So we put on our best clothes and the state fair was going on at the same time. So mom and dad drove me down to Columbus. We stayed in a hotel. I went to the interview for the job and then we stayed overnight and went to the state fair the next day. It was a wonderful blend between country and city. So I got this job and turns out it was a Centers for Disease Control funded study of Rye syndrome which back in the 70s, 60s and 70s, was a very mysterious childhood illnesses, illness. Some kids would get the flu and chicken pox and they'd get better. But some kids would get the flu or the chicken pox and they would just start to be getting better. And all of a sudden they would grow, go into this amazing projectile vomiting, their brains would swell, they would have neurological complications, their livers got funky. Sometimes they died, sometimes they survived, but with, with lasting complications. And it was a mysterious disease, nobody knew what caused it. So the Centers for Disease Control funded a study at the Ohio Department of Health, Michigan and Arizona. And so we did a case control, and I was right out of college. I was just a kid. I don't know what, 21, 22. And what a big deal. And the CDC, oh my God, I'd heard about the CDC, but I'd never been there. Right. And so I got to go to CDC and all these kinds. Of, it was really amazing. Anyway, so the, the work that we did, actually, we did a case control study and we interviewed parents of kids who got Rye syndrome and parents of kids who didn't. And what we found was that kids who, who were given baby aspirin, during their chicken pox or the flu were more likely to go on and get Rye syndrome than kids who weren't given baby aspirin. And you are probably too young to know this, but back in the day, people used to just pop those baby aspirin for their kids. I mean, they were little pink pills, little orange pills. Now we use them as old people to help us with our, with our cardiac risk the little 81 milligram pills, right? And so it was really our study, uh, the Ohio Department of Health study, which I worked on, that, that, that sealed the link between giving a child aspirin and they're getting Rye syndrome. And so the aspirin companies didn't like that, so they sued us. I did a seven hour deposition with the silk suit lawyers from the aspirin companies, which again, for a kid who's 22, grew up on the farm, that was an amazing experience. We got to testify at the Institute of Medicine in Washington, DC. I had never been there before. I mean, again, just what, what a story for this little farm girl, right? Well, so, so there were actually journal articles published. They could not refute our study. That's the so what. The aspirin companies, no matter what the lawyers tried to do, they, they got our data, they looked at the, at the questionnaires, they looked at the data, and they could not put a hole in our study. I did good work, right? And, I, and you'll love this too, Cole. I remember sitting at the kitchen table coding data forms and praying, God, let us find something in this data. And so to this very day, if you go to buy a bottle of aspirin and you look at the warnings, it's going to say on the back of that bottle, do not give this product to children. It may cause Rye syndrome. Wow. Isn't that amazing? And so I've, yes. I've, I'm a real data geek. I've got a slide on my phone. I should have sent it to, to you ahead of time. 
But when, when that article was published and doctors started finding out that, hey, this link between aspirin and Rye syndrome is real, and parents started finding out, the data went from up here with, with cases and mortality, zoom, clear down, just like almost over, over a year's period of time. And so again, for me, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, I have probably saved more lives by doing a good job in that study than if I had been a little doctor back home in a little small town. It was amazing. That was my first job. That was my first job. And so to have a couple journal articles published, I was the fourth author. I was never important enough to be first, second, or third. No offense to them. Um, but w what an amazing thing. But the other thing that, that I remember about that was one of the treatments, as I remember it, as I understand it, was when kids would have this and their brain was, spe was swelling, again, it was the 60s and 70s, they might do something different today, but as I understand it, they would cut their skull so that their brain could swell without mm -hmm. being damaged. You're a dad. I can't imagine standing at the foot of that bed, seeing your child in that condition, and then thinking, I gave him the aspirin. I gave him the aspirin. Because the news was starting to get out, even before it was official. And so that's really, too, when my interest in grief was first kind of peaked. You know, again, it was no big deal on the farm. But seeing these parents with, with the grief of what was happening to their child and this, this responsibility, this regret, oh my gosh, I gave them the aspirin, was really touched my heart. I, I'm a left brain logical epidemiologist kind of a person, but I'm also a right brain heart kind of a person. And that just broke my heart. That just broke my heart. And so I was also responsible for doing the case counting and surveillance for Legionnaire's disease, which was new back then, toxic shock, which was new back then, uh, Kawasaki disease, which was new. So it was what an amazing early career in public health to be at the state health department working on CDC funded projects and, and, and these mysterious diseases. It was amazing. It was amazing. People say I should write a book. Oh. I don't know. Anyway, and then yeah. in 1981, uh, in 1981, along came a new mysterious disease where you, you were probably born in 81, weren't you, Cole? April? I yeah. was, yeah. Born in 81. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, good memory. So in yeah. June, June of 1981, there was this article that came out about this mysterious disease among young gay men in San Francisco in New York. Well, it's a mysterious disease. Give it to Lois, right? So Rye syndrome, Kawasaki, toxic shock, Legionnaires, et cetera. And they added AIDS to my list of, of diseases to work on. And as we saw AIDS growing, they took the other diseases away. And so the middle, kind of middle third of my career was just working in the AIDS program. And again, my heart broke for, for and back in the early days, it was young men, broke for those young men, for their partners, for the, for the physicians, right? Infectious disease docs usually gave people a pill, they got better and they went home. These young men, there was nothing given them to make them get better and go home in the early days. And so even the medical professionals were grieving uh, that they weren't being able to be successful. And the families, the families, you couldn't, you could, you know, somebody says, oh, hey, how's your son? Oh, he's great, he's fine, he's wonderful. How's yours? Oh, well, um, he's gay and he's got AIDS. So, so again, this not being able to talk about it, not being able to tell the truth, the grief that they had with this secrecy and the fear, right? I mean, in the early days, we didn't know how it was spread. The whole COVID thing in the early days reminded me a lot of the early AIDS days. And so again, I was struck by the grief primarily that the, that the professionals had and that the parents had. And that's when I met your dad. 
a friend at church had a son who had died by suicide. And so I was asking her, you know, how do you deal with the grief? And she said, oh, you got you to gotta read this book, this Grief Recovery Handbook. And oh, John James is coming to Columbus to do a talk. And you got you to gotta go and hear him. And so again, it, my, my career in public health really spurred my, my interest in, in grief. And for me to this very day, I consider I still work in the field of public health that grief is my program. So, you know, so yeah, I, I have loved my work in public health and, and how, it, how it works together with, with the grief work. Yeah, I would, thank you for that. That's such an incredible story to be, to kind of be at the epicenter of all of those things as oh. like starting your career and being the epicenter, like in public health in those times and, and dealing with all of those struggles that we've struggled with. That's incredible. Um, I, 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 yeah. Again, you're 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 a remarkable woman. You know that. You don't need me me to say that. But again, I, I love to just hear this. Uh, I could. So so if you would now, let's go from okay. Now we're established. Now we've had you know we've had a career now in public health. You talk to this lady, and she she puts on your radar grief recovery, um, you know, and, and grief unresolved grief being you know something that is part of it. I would I really am interested to hear your story on how you went from public health and treating all of these different things. Uh, in addition to the public health stuff, I think we're really dealing with right this minute, which is obesity and drug addiction and alcoholism and, and violence, both domestic violence, gang violence, suicide. anger, suicide. Right. Um, all of these things that are public health issues, big, big, serious issues. Yes. Um, and when I just want to know when it really you had the aha moment that, oh, my underneath wow. all of this is unresolved loss, emotional yeah. pain, grief, whatever you want to call it. Obviously, people are calling it yeah. trauma right now. And there's yeah. of course, there's factors and there's nuances to each of these words I just said. But ultimately, it's about sad things happening from my past and I don't know what to do with them and they pile up and I have to find something to distract me from that. Will you walk us through kind of just in, in your history oh, yeah. when you kind of connect the dots and stuff like that? Oh, my God. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I met your dad. I went to the conference where he was speaking. I heard him. I was hooked. So I got back in touch with, with your dad at the Institute, and, and I had CDC grant dollars for, for AIDS and professional education dollars. And so I used some of those CDC grant dollars to bring your dad to Columbus I don't know, three, four, five times to talk to doctors, to talk to nurses, to talk to clergy people, to talk to family. I, mean, I brought him several times and he, going back to the airport, went, hell, hell, I'm not coming back to do another talk till you get trained. So um, <laughs> through the United Methodist Church, I'm a, I'm a United Methodist, and through the United Methodist Church, I got some money, a grant to take the training. And so it was, it was a training in Memphis with your dad. And as with the, the aha moment, the light bulbs going off, I remember exactly, there's a point in the training where we talk about all the ways that, that we try to numb our feelings, right? We eat, we drink, we drug, we shake babies, we drive risky, we do all kinds of things, and more now. We play on our cell phones, we use video games, we do all kinds of things, we shop. Uh, some people clean, that's not me. Some people exercise, that's not me. Mine is more like sleeping and eating, but those, those are the ways we numb it too. And I remember sitting there and thinking, oh my God, we've got a program at public health for every one of these things and they're not working. 
right? We've got pamphlets and brochures about drugs and tobacco and alcohol and obesity. And then the next thing that we talked about after these behaviors that we engage in, we call them health risk behaviors in public health. But the next thing your dad talked about was all the ways these, these unresolved griefs impact our physical health, right? We gain weight or we or, or anorexia and bulimia. Or we, or we have, di our diabetes gets out of whack because we're eating all the wrong things. Or we get cancer because we smoke. Or we, uh, you know, whatever, all these, all these physical things. Our immune system gets messed up. Even, even pregnancies, right? I mean, toxic stress in a community we know now impacts the health and the vitality of the baby in a pregnancy. And so again, we had just talked about all of these health risk behaviors that we use to numb or escape or distract from grief. And then we talked all about the physical things. And I went, oh my God, we've got a program for all of those too. And they're not working. We're spending millions of dollars on all of these public health issues and it's not working because we're not getting to the heart of the matter, right? In fact, I tell people now when I do talks for public health people, the, the word is right there. The clue is in the word. Our dis-ease causes our disease. It's right there in the word, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Our dis-ease with all of this stuff in our life you know, and it's never just one loss. It's never just, you know, somebody died. Well, somebody died and then your income changes and maybe you have to move to a different house or you get a divorce and all these things change and happen. And then your health starts. So we're sick and tired of being sick and tired. That's the way we live our life, right? And that's not how we're intended to be. I love this idea of, you know, coming back to freedom. We are not, we were not intended in my belief by our creator to live like this. But we do, we're just numbed out from all this stuff. And so if we could get to the heart of the matter, that's what really frees us from all of these things, from the, from the risky health behaviors, perhaps from some of the, of the illnesses and the, and the social things like the violence and the cutting and the, you know, all of the you know, harming your body and, and all of those things, you know, it's a public health issue. That was, to, for me, it was sitting in that training with your dad. I had heard him do talks for an hour or two several times, but it was sitting in that training and really spending some intense time on these health risk behaviors and the, and the health, health outcomes and impacts of that. And literally, I sat there in the training and cried because that's my career mm -hmm. and we're not making a difference. And then I got back to work like the very next week. And I think, I think you mentioned domestic violence a little bit ago too. One of my work colleagues came back from a conference where she had heard about this thing called the ACE study, Adverse Childhood Experiences. It was new back in the 80s and 90s. And she came back and did a presentation at a staff meeting on the Adverse Childhood Experiences study. And I teared up again because what the ACE study says is these things start in childhood. And so now we're coming full circle to what do we tell the kids? Is it a big deal or is it a not a big deal? Do we say that dad died or we just, do we say we lost dad, right? And, and those things that happen to children in their lives that we never talk about, that's where that dis-ease starts. And so for me, that was again, the absolute link and, and, and affirmation that, that, that this whole journey of wanting to be a doctor and not getting into medical school and finding public health and doing the RISE study and working in AIDS and meeting your dad and getting the training, you know, it, it just all came together. It just all came together. We cannot work hard enough, fast enough, and wide enough to help people be free again, 
right? Yeah. We've got the tools. We can't work hard enough, fast enough to, to help get that message out there because it's possible. So that was my yeah. aha moment was in that training, seeing those, those flip charts up on the wall with the, with the risk behaviors and with the health impacts. That was the aha moment wow. that said grief is a public health issue. Okay, I, I love it. And, and I was just, just so you, the audience knows, I was just out in Ohio with Lois, and I got to see a little bit about what she's been up to in Ohio, and it's nothing, sh it's nothing short of amazing. Um, this is, again, she's putting this together right in the 90s, right? I think, right? Yep. She's putting this yep. together. Oh, wow, public health, unresolved grief and emotional pain and trauma, whatever you want to call it, but it's an emotional pain that we don't know what to do with is causing all of these public health issues. And we have all these programs to manage your anger or help with your eat nutritionally. But we can't do that if we have this mountain of unresolved energy that is, is continually on fire in us. And Absolutely. we have to, you know, and these, these things that we're doing are just essentially us distracting, right? So we're trying to, Absolutely. we keep trying to treat, treat the symptom. And it's like, but we're not going and dealing with it. Um, yeah. So can you tell, like, again, I was so floored. So you have Joe Mazzola, and you yes. have all these other people in the Ohio Department of Health, uh, it, you know, big state. They finally get it. He said such great stuff at, at this conference I was at with yeah. you. Yeah. So would you just kind of just tell the audience all the sure. cool stuff that you guys in Ohio are doing yeah, around this topic absolutely. now? You know, absolutely. now what, 20, 30 years later into it now? Right, right. Well, and that for me is, you know, the, the value of persistence. I, I tell people I have been like water drops on a rock. I have been talking since the 90s about grief as a public mm -hmm. health issue. And I really couldn't get a lot of people to listen. COVID came along and all of a sudden people are starting to talk about grief. It's really kind of the first time you started to hear the word grief in any of the news stories, right? Because people were dying and it was mysterious. It was scary. And, and there was no treatment in the early days and it was you know, frightening. And, and healthcare workers were burning out, right? Well, that's the same thing that happened in AIDS when they couldn't help those guys get better. And so in October, and just a shout out to Joe, he's actually the health commissioner for Franklin County public health, okay. not the state. Gotcha. Joe is with yep. the Franklin County Health Department. Wonderful, magnificent guy. Love him dearly. Um, so I've been like this water drops on rock. And so in August of 2021, COVID was still a pretty, pretty much at a peak. Governor DeWine, again, shout out to the governor and to our health director at the time, Dr. Amy Acton. They were doing great work with, with COVID in Ohio. And the governor had weekly calls with all of our local health commissioners. And one day he asked, what do you guys need? What do you need? What can I do for you? And the health commissioners just started talking about our staff are exhausted. They're worn out. We're seeing death in our community. You know, people can't go to funerals. We're not having kids in school. They can't go to graduations. What do you got for that governor? What do you got for that? And so one of my colleagues at the state health department, ODH, Wally Burden, called and said, Lois, we had this call today, and I've been hearing you talk about this grief stuff for decades now. Could you do something for us? It's like, you bet I can. When do you need the proposal? He said, well, I, I need it by Friday. This was Wednesday night. So I put together a proposal. I sent him the proposal. I didn't hear anything. I thought, well, you know, it didn't go anywhere. A couple of months later, I get a call from another administrator who says, I want to talk to you about that proposal. What? Right. And I and so she said, and I said oh, yeah, that, that thing I sent in. And, I, and she said, yeah, they want to fund it. And I said, well, what parts? I always put the kitchen sink in a proposal and then we take things out that they don't want to do. So I put the kitchen sink in there and and she said, well, I don't know. Looking at it, I guess they want to fund it all. 
So I have, to my knowledge, and I would know this because of my connections with public health and with the Grief Recovery Institute, to my knowledge, Ohio is the only state in the country where the state health department, I'm so proud of them, you know, it took them some time, but they, they gave me a contract to work on providing grief education and support for our local health department staff. And so the program has four components. First is education. I've done, I'll bet you now, close to 100 webinars for public health professionals, community health workers, patient navigators, anybody who will listen. Just a, a basic one and a half hour talk on what is grief and why is it so mysterious? And they, they get it, they love it. That's part one is education. The second part is support. For those people who listen to that webinar and go, oh, great, you know, I've got some stuff I need to work on. I, you know, that's that what you're describing, that's me. I, I'm that uh, kind of person. I need help. And so again, kudos to the, to the Ohio Department of Health. They will allow me, for anybody who, who participates in one of those webinars or who finds out about the program, if they want to actually go through the grief recovery method, they will let them do that, and many of their local health commissioners let them do that on work time because keeping a healthy employee saves you money down the road too. And so I've also been able to help local health department staff go through the program. And, I, and, it's, and it's been wonderful. The comments have been wonderful coming back. And then the third component is training, right? I can keep showing them and giving them fish, or I can teach them how to fish. And so the biggest part of this contract is to have local public health department staff go through the training, same one I went through with your dad, right, to go through the training so that they can provide these programs at the local level, so that they can provide these programs. So we have 22 right now, 22 trained and, and more coming next year. Um, to, to be grief recovery method specialists in their local communities. We had a call this morning, end of year summary. Tell me what, tell me what you've been doing. And one of the questions is what, what have been your challenges? But one of the questions is what's the best part? What's keeping you do this? And their faces just light up. Oh my gosh, when I see them get it. When I see that one of the, one of the uh, public health nurses uh, from, from my rural health department in, in Putnam County, Ohio, she said one of her past participants said to her, you know, Sherry, I'm singing in my heart again. Cole, is that not free to be alive again? She said, I was so burdened by this stuff I was carrying. I, I, I feel like I'm singing in my heart. Who wouldn't want to do that, right? And so, and so that's the kind of success that they're getting at the local level. And then the second program, which I want to focus on more next year, is this helping children with loss. We've got to teach adults how to do a better job. And again, we're coming right circling back to your kids on the farm, me on the farm. We've got to do a better job helping our kids deal with the loss, the change, the stuff that happens in their lives, because it's a pretty shitty world if you watch the news and read the paper. And our kids are affected by that. And so, so we have the second program that I really want them to focus on next year for school staff, school personnel, school nurses, pediatricians, uh, family and children's services people, juvenile justice people, foster care, adoption. I mean, look how many places people touch our kids' lives. And, and so, so that's the third piece. And then the fourth one, how many fingers did I use? The fourth one is evaluation. How are we doing? Right? Are we making a difference? Are we moving the marble? And so, so that's the program we have here, and they have funded me since October of 2021. And I just learned this week that they're continuing that funding through December of 2024. So it must be working. 
It must be working or they wouldn't give those dollars, right? I am so proud of the Ohio Department of Health, the Association of Ohio Health Commissioners, and our local health department staff who are the, the boots on the ground of delivering these programs. So, so that's well, what we're doing yeah. in Ohio, and I would love to see other states pick that up too. So. Yeah, you you guys are the model. What what you're doing there and what you helped establish there in Ohio. Uh, again, our country would be really in a better place if if we could find out how to do that in in more states. And uh, it's just again, what you're doing is nothing short of amazing. I also want to just give you credit uh, publicly because again, with your background with all this all this research and studies i remember we're in arizona having lunch one you know years back and you're like cole we really need to we need to really study this work this method the grief recovery method and i was resistant just because it's not really my world i don't come from a very academic background it's just not kind of my lane and i had some doubts about it right but but again you 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 helped initiate basically this this work becoming evidence-based right yeah, so like you were yeah. saying it must be working they're they're you know renewing the contract we know it's yeah. working in large part due to the 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 research that you helped head up so yeah. i just want to thank you for that too because oh. that's really opened a lot of doors for this work to be found you know just understood as credible and, and legitimate and 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 helpful right and so right. i just want to again say thank you for for initiating that for us right because yeah. it's like who, who better than to bring that whole concept had, into this world? We had decades of what's called anecdotal evidence, right? Practice-based mm -hmm. evidence. We knew, we knew it worked. Your dad yep. knew it worked, right? We wouldn't still be yep. talking about it 40-some years later if it didn't work, right? right? So yep. we, had, we had anecdotal evidence, practice-based evidence, but there were no journal articles. And about the time I was retiring from the Ohio Department of Health, this phrase, evidence-based, started all of a sudden being the big buzzword, right? And funders started saying, well, we're not gonna pay for something if it's not evidence-based, right? Doing a health fair, not evidence-based. People come to the health fair, they pick up your brochure and they drop it in the trash can on the way out. Health fair is not evidence-based. And so we had to do a study that looked at people before they took the program, after they took the program, and then several months later to see, you know, was there a change and did the change last? And so I'm also really pleased that that study was done out of a College of Public Health, right? Because that's what we do. So, so Kent State University, the College of Public Health there is where the research originated, and they are continuing to do that research. One of the researchers has moved on to the University of Cincinnati. Another one of the researchers is at the University of Findlay. And, and so the research is continuing, and, and they're going deeper. Uh, and that was one of the most exciting presentations at the conference. You know, the first study was great. It showed it, it worked. But now we could look at other little nuances. Well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this population, right? They did a small study in an African-American male uh, uh, population. It worked there, too. And so they're, and, and then helping children with loss, right? How do we prove that that works? Because that's not touching the kids. That's touching the adults who, who work with the kids. And so I'm really, th thank you by the way, thank you for saying yes, sure. you know, or yes, maybe, kind of, sort of, <laughs> right? Um, because well, that took courage on your part. Because, you know, when you, when you do research, you, it, there is a chance, small, there is a chance that it could say, nope, it doesn't work, right? We didn't want yeah. to do that. And, and thankfully, blessedly, you know, the research says, yeah, the program works. The eight-week in-person group program was the one they studied. That was our primary product at the time. And, and so that's what gave us that first evidence-based 
research moniker, if you will, um, and the, the research is continuing. And they've presented at numerous conferences, you know, for professionals, the left brain logic epidemiology people. Um, and so, you know, that word is getting out in that circle too. So, yeah, good stuff. Well, listen, I... Um... Yeah, great stuff, and we're we're coming up on our hour, and and so there will definitely be a part two, my friend. So we are going to get together and have another conversation. Um, but just know, I thoroughly enjoyed this one. I won't say this to every guest I have on, but I love you, and I appreciate you, and I I so thank you for being on here. Um, how can people? find you if they want to find you are you on social media do you have any an email you want to put out do you yeah. have a website like how, how can people find you if they want to talk yeah. to you more lois best way to find me honestly is through the grief recovery website i i bought okay. a domain name but i haven't used it i haven't had time to create okay. a website but on the grief recovery uh grief recovery method.com there's a thing that says our programs right and if you click on the our programs uh tab and you scroll down and you look for either one-on-one -on -one work or group work or helping children with loss and you put in columbus ohio right you're going to come up with a list of people in this area and and it'll be my little my little web page on the on the thing and it'll have how to email me how to call me um, you know, and you can read more there. I've actually on my microsite, I've got a couple presentations that I've given. So you could watch me do a, like a one hour talk if you want to. So that would be the best and, and, way. Okay. And we'll, we'll also just, if you're, if you're watching, we'll link to her, her site on our page or her page on our site. We'll link to it in the description, in the show notes. And then, um, yeah. And then we will also, um, um, yeah. So anyway, just look out for that. If you need to get uh, a hold of her. Uh, and Lois, again, I just want to thank you for being on. And I want to thank you for all, all you've done for just people, humanity, Ohio, uh, the list goes on, right? And so, and we got lots more to do in 2024. And you will definitely be on as a return guest, no doubt about it. So again, Lois Hall, thank you so much for your time. My honor. <laughs>